0: Hi everyone, it's me, Reshma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect. On this podcast, I talk with up and coming change makers from all around the world, but with a little twist. Every episode is going to highlight ideas from my new book, Brave Not Perfect. Fear less, fail more, and live bolder. Get ready to break free from the cult of perfection. Today, I'm talking with Rachel Simmons, the author of several incredible books about resilience and girls, two of my favorite topics. She's the Girls Research Scholar-in-Residence at the Hewitt School in New York, lives in Massachusetts with her daughter and her dog. I spoke to Rachel when I was writing my book, Brave Not Perfect, and I've basically been obsessed with every single thing that she's written and I've learned so much from her. I am so excited to talk to Rachel today and learn even more from her. You have been researching girls for a long time. What's the biggest difference you see in the way that girls behave in 2018 compared to like the 2000s?
1: Great question. I think it's basically the dark side of all of this opportunity. That's the difference. So we've told girls you can do and be anything you want. They've heard it, to quote Courtney Martin, as you have to be everything that you want and that Mm. people want of you. And whereas I think there might've been some older school rules in play in the early 2000s, where we knew that, you know, girl power had happened and there still was a lot of expectation. What we see now, um, as we go into 2019 is this sense that the sky's the limit. And not only do I have to do everything new that was previously not available to me, but I also have to keep all of the old school expectations in play. So I have to like have a bikini body and get one like per minute on Instagram and have a really pop in Snapchat feed on the weekends and basically be that total good girl and the cool girl, but also be the high achieving girl. And that's, I think, what's different.
0: And Is that a lot about social media? Social media made everything so transparent to all that it's like made the problem worse. Well,
1: transparent and not transparent. So social media is a tool. And in my most recent book, I talk about it almost as like a time-saving device, the way that, let's say in like the 1950s, there were new appliances that allowed women to spend less time doing domestic labor and more time working outside the home. So I see social media as one of those devices that allows girls to kind of take care of a lot of their social work. And even though it is time consuming, they can do it in a really convenient way and on their own schedule. And so that has really transformed the way girls represent themselves, which is partly transparent in the sense that they're showing themselves all the time, but it's partly a lie because they're only showing the most perfect Curated parts of themselves and that's creating A lot of challenges for them
0: And it's so wild you know I have a six year old niece And it's just the way she lives her life Like I still have anxiety about doing an Instagram Story you know what I mean like is the Picture perfect that's like not. is it here
1: I will tutor totally. Instagram story
0: <laughs> But you know what I'm saying like I'm like how many likes do I have it Bothers me that I feel like I'm having A social event and I have to tell The world what I'm doing whether for, for my niece, Maya, that's just her life, right? It, there's no anxiety around that, which is just shot weird. Is it true? Is, it, is that is she really having no anxiety? No, I think there is anxiety. Like, I had
1: a conversation with a ninth grade girl, and I don't think this is exceptional, who said to me, I can't go to sleep at night until all my notifications are clicked on and answered.
0: Like, mm-hmm. I can't
1: go to sleep at night if there's any type of, like, notification number on my phone. And... I think that there is anxiety in the sense that I feel like I have to respond to everyone who has reached out to me or I have to look at what everyone's doing and like their posts because and it, it's a kind of social work that they're doing and if they lose pace and they can't keep up, I do think it creates anxiety.
0: That is true. Like if you look at again, sorry, I live my life through my niece, but like, you know, she has very high engagement amongst her like you know, group of followers, like they really must sit there and like every single thing. And yeah, that has to be stressful, especially if you're like going to soccer class, or you have anything else going on in your life.
1: Right. And it's I guess it's sort of like a two sided thing. Because on the one hand, you're accomplishing a lot of your social goals at once, right? You're you're seeing people you're being seen if you're producing social media yourself, and you're doing it all like from your bed at 11 o'clock at night just by pressing your finger over and over again on someone's picture. Like, there is something really convenient and time-saving about that, but it is also this really stressful obligation at times.
0: So why are you obsessed by this? You've basically spent most of your career, a lot of your career, writing about girls.
1: I know. Hashtag arrested development.
0: Yeah. What's up?
1: Well, honestly, I think part of it is that I was really young when I wrote my first book and I was in hindsight, kind of a girl myself, I probably didn't have enough authority or gravitas to work with adults. So I think the good news is that because so much of what I write about in girls, women also observe in themselves, I'm now working more with adult women, which is great because now I have gray hair and I kind of look apart more. But I also think that I went through so many challenges and experiences in girlhood that I never quite made sense of. And at the same time, which really shaped my relationships as a young adult, and so I think a lot of my work, interviews with girls and writing and research is has been an attempt to make peace with my own inner girl, which is, of course, why I'm so interested in the inner girl now, um, kind of in my latest work, because I'm getting old. I have to tell you, Rashma, one of the, um, I don't know if you've had this experience working with girls, but when I was younger and first starting out and doing this work, like the first five or 10 years, I would walk into a room of like middle school girls and they would just keep talking because I looked like <laughs> one of them. Now I walk into room. This is how I knew I was old. And they stopped talking because mm-hmm. I'm like an authority figure. And I was like, Oh, God, like I'm officially old now.
0: Yes, totally.
1: I'm an old fart to them. Like, I'm an authority figure, so they're going to hide, which is what girls do, right? They're like, oh, no way. We're not going to tell you what we're really talking about.
0: Do you feel like you figured it out? Because, I mean, you have this great line of essentially, you you say it better than I'm about to say, but all the problems that you have as a girl, you essentially have the exact same problems and insecurities as a woman. Like, nothing changes. That's the big reveal. That's the big reveal. Can you say it better than I say it, please? I I mean, just
1: that we all have this inner girl that's still there, right? I mean, we, we maybe look a little different, like our faces are a little longer and like we're paying taxes and stuff, but we're still dealing with a lot of the same shit. Sorry, I don't have a more articulate word, but we are. I mean, for example, if you're somebody who struggled with insecurity socially, like you really wondered if people were mad at you or like you really wanted to be accepted by people, or you felt paranoid about your friends abandoning you, Some of us don't outgrow that. And not only do we not outgrow it, but then we visit that on our own children when we become parents. So I think part of it has to do, and I'm curious to know what you think about this, with the kind of siloing of girls and women's movements, that like girls and women don't really talk to each other that much. So it makes sense to me that women would be, and girls would be dealing with the exact same thing without necessarily getting together on it.
0: Oh, that's powerful. I think that's right. Like I find... I talk exactly the same to my girls who code that I do to like a women's leadership group that's like 50 or 60 years old. And I think that that's... Probably unusual. Like, I used to get so frustrated when I hear people talking to girls and they're like using that soft, down, weird voice, you know? And it's like, no, no, they, they don't have to talk to them that way. But that's right. I, I do feel like women's and girls' movies are siloed. Like, girls are almost like a cute accessory to like invite to an event. So we have girls there, but like, we're really not thinking that we're kind of going through the same challenges. I mean, that's what I'm so excited about my Brave Not Perfect book, which basically it's relatable to a Mm 17-year-old, to a 40-year-old, to an 80-year-old. And part of that is, you're right, we're always, we're kind of struggling with the same things. But does it get better? How does it get better? A
1: big way that it gets better is that we're willing to be authentic and vulnerable with each other and to resist the pressure to kind of curate our representation all the time. So we have to be willing to say to each other, like, I don't have it all together And what do you do to deal with this problem? I mean, I do think that probably the most effective thing I do as an educator of girls and women is I just talk about my real life. Like I'm willing to be a high achiever who says, and also I sometimes feel like an imposter. And so I think part of the trick is, is, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but it's just being real. It's being vulnerable. It's being willing to say, I don't have all the answers and it's i think being willing to ask other people about their challenges and to listen to what works for others.
0: Right. I mean like every woman i know has trouble asking for help like myself included. I mean admitting in vulnerability i think is much harder for us. Mm-hmm. And look, there's definitely i mean you kind of see it with the conversations happening around Cheryl Sandberg, you know, over the past couple of weeks, right? There's a cost in many ways, of like, or at least women think that there's a cost in essentially admitting mistakes for women that there may not be for men. How do you shift that? Is that true? Like, how do you shift that dynamic?
1: I agree. Although let's take the example of Cheryl, and it is sort of a a cringeworthy moment, I think, just observing what has happened in terms of how she's being treated. I'm not clear that she's being subject to any more stigma or ire than her counterparts. But I will say that, I think she was very successful at being vulnerable around the death of her husband, around the launch of option B, her nonprofit, her second nonprofit around cultivating resilience. Um, So I think it depends. I mean, I think I, I do think that women and minorities are held doubly responsible for the mistakes that say a white man would make and be held less responsible for. But I do think it depends on the kind of vulnerability we're talking about.
0: But also, like, where we want to see women be vulnerable, right? Like, I think we want we we we're comfortable seeing women vulnerable around death around you, know what I mean, personal stuff that feels very almost feminist or m- maternal. And we're more uncomfortable, you know, I think potentially having or women at least feel like it, there's a higher cost to be paid when you are vulnerable or admit mistakes in business.
1: 100%. However, I think we don't want to conflate asking for help and making a mistake. Yeah, because they're not necessarily the same thing. And like, I can tell you on a college campus where I work, And I see this too in high school girls as well, that we kind of have this continuum of support seeking where there's a lot of people who live on either extreme, but not a lot in the middle. So for example, we have a lot of students who ask for help constantly. Some would say too much. And then we have students who don't ask for any help until they can't get out of bed or they need to be hospitalized or, you know, because they're having some type of mental health event. And so I think that helping Students helping young people and, and frankly adults as well to be able to say like it's not that I've made a mistake it's just that I don't have all the resources I need to accomplish this goal that is really powerful and to help women reflect on well why why is it hard for you to ask for help do you believe you're burdening someone do you you know have you been socialized to be perfect in the ways that Rashma you talk about and therefore you um, have imagined that asking for help is tantamount to being incompetent in some way not taking care of people in the ways that you've been expected to. So I think those kinds of conversations can, can be very useful. I've seen them be really useful with my own students.
0: And it's funny because I think men are comfortable asking for help, you know, it, it, which is ironic, right? Because in some ways, I feel like they're conditioned to be strong and fearless. And you know what I mean? Like, I got it all covered. But I, I don't, I don't think they struggle with it in the same exact way. And I do think that perfectionism plays a big role.
1: I also just think like, Kind of to your point that asking for help is a privilege, right? I mean, mm. it's it's a privilege to be able to say I don't have all the answers. In fact, I'm just thinking about like a, a situation that I encountered where a parent said to me, you know, my daughter shoplifted. She told me about it after the fact. You know, what should I do? And I was asked to give this parent advice, and I did it in a public forum. And I said, you know, um, at first I said, I think it's important that you talk to her. And then I said, I think it's important that you ask her to go back to CVS or wherever it was and return the item. And a woman of color spoke up and said, you know, I would never take my brown skin child back to a pharmacy where she'd shoplifted because of the you know, outsized response that I would expect, including calling the police mm-hmm. because of the color of my child's skin. You know, she's totally right. And I felt that was a great moment of checking my white privilege. And I think but it gets to this question of like, who gets to make mistakes? Who gets to say they don't have all the answers? Who gets to say they're still learning?
0: Yeah, I'm working on a op-ed right now about women of color and perfectionism. Because it's we were living this really interesting time right now where you're Michelle Obama, right? So much of her book and so much of what she's talking about is like, I had miscarriages. Like, Barack and I are in counseling, you know? And Stacey Abrams saying, you know what? I lost my running again. Like, you're really, you know, Alexandria Ocasio. Like, you're really seeing these kind of powerful women of color, basically not, you, you know what I mean? Like sh- uh, like lifting the veil, right? And showing showing the hard stuff.
1: But I think Michelle also talks quite a bit in the book about being a perfectionist and yeah. kind of holding herself to these unfair standards. And I really appreciate that perspective. I'm psyched that you're writing an op-ed about this because it's funny, you know, as someone who writes about girls, when I write about things like what I call the curse of the good girl, many people think I'm writing about white girls. And I'm like, no, 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 no. There are so many girls of color who identify with that good girl pressure, who in many ways seem indistinguishable from the kind of typical white girl perfectionist. And I think in some ways this has to do with, there's been a lot of idealization of African-American girls psychology in particular, because they tend to be more confident. They tend to be more ambitious. They identify as leaders more. But I think we've kind of covered over the fact that perfectionism is not a white girl's problem. And I think that leaves a lot of girls of color not feeling
0: seen. I actually would argue that I think, you know, I would say this as daughter of immigrants, I was told every day that I should be perfect and get great grades and don't squander the opportunity and we've sacrificed so much to be here and you know, da 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 da. da, 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 da yeah. Right. And that there was no room for basically in a white male world, you don't get to like, you know what I mean? You don't get to fuck up. And so I in some ways I think that perfectionism in many ways is much more painful you, and you use and I don't think that people of color are celebrated for their failures maybe unless they're athletes in the mm-hmm. same you know like if you think about entrepreneurship uh, people love investing in like companies of like white men who like you know uh, gone bankrupt four times you know take a black woman right in there who's like gone bankrupt four times and like you're not getting the same response that's right and that's a problem
1: yeah it is a problem and it makes me think as you always make me think in great ways that in in our current fetishization of failure right if we if we are we're, yeah. we're fetishizing failure in such big ways we haven't really deconstructed that conversation around it you know in an intersectional way we haven't really talked about the cost of failing you know, I mean, there have been a couple pieces about it, but I think it, I think it's really critical that you're adding to the conversation about that.
0: Well, I, you know, that's one of the great things when you're writing a book like you're just you're like in your own head and you're like, wait, how does this play out for me, for other people, for different groups? And like, is it the same? And I have been fascinated, I think, with what you're seeing happen with a lot of powerful women of color. And it feels like there's a little bit of a shift. But maybe it's because, like you said, about Michelle, mm-hmm. she was perfect first. So then yeah. she got then yeah. she was allowed to fail. You know, because she was already perfect and loved and then she was allowed to show her vulnerability and her mistakes.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think the title of the memoir, Becoming, is in essence antithetical to perfectionism. It talks about process, yeah. right? That she's in the process. She's in the mess. She's not focusing on the outcome.
0: Yeah. So what did you, you've basically, are you still at Hewitt? I'm
1: winding down there um, and I'm I'm really based at Smith College, which is where I'm talking to you from up in Western Massachusetts. I'm mostly working with college students day to day. I run a leadership program up here and it's, it's great. I mean, it's great to be able to have contact with young women all the time.
0: Do you think, are you feeling hopeful? I mean,
1: that's a good question. You're asking a pessimistic Jewish New Yorker. (laughs) You know, after all the therapy, yes, no, my, and my immersion in positive psychology. Yeah. I feel hopeful. I mean, I feel hopeful because I am immersed in the development of skills to you know eradicate things like perfectionism and self-criticism and I have seen how skill building pays off so I watch my students really push back against the pressure to be perfect in very practical ways and so I think I feel hopeful because I'm in a position where I get to teach and I get to see the outcomes I feel less hopeful when I look at the data on anxiety and stress and, you know, we're seeing just as achievement is skyrocketing, we're also seeing these
0: markers around
1: wellness that are just plummeting and they're going in exactly, at exactly the same pace, but in opposite directions. And that's troubling.
0: Yeah. I was talking to a friend today and we were saying that in some ways also this emphasis on wellness is a, is, mm-hmm. is an emphasis on perfection right? Like eat a lot of green juice so you could be perfectly healthy. You know what I mean? Work out all the time so you can be perfectly thin. It's almost like making the problem worse.
1: Uh, I can I agree with you more. And I think in my last book, I talked about how wellness has become kind of the new way to talk about diet, to your point, and that wellness and deprivation are now sort of interchangeable. And also that there's there's really interesting research about what are called fit inspiration websites and handles on Instagram that are focused supposedly on wellness and fitness, but that the language on these sites and the images on these sites, researchers are finding, are barely distinguishable from what are called thin sites and handles. So there has been quite a bit of writing on this, and you know there's an article in the New York Times Magazine earlier this year, I believe, about how Weight Watchers is basically dropping the word diet and they're making health and wellness. Yeah. And so in many ways, we have like a a wolf in sheep's clothing um, and around that wellness conversation, which is really important for educators of girls and women to pay attention to because we want to make sure that we're not inadvertently um, pushing the language of diet and deprivation, you know, under the guise of this more innocent um, or innocuous wellness.
0: So do you think you're still a perfectionist?
1: I've come a long way. Uh, I call myself a recovering overachiever who occasionally falls (laughs) off the wagon. Uh, That's kind of how I represent myself. I have to tell you, the discovery of self-compassion has pretty much changed my life.
0: It is a skill that I teach. Tell me about that. Give me a mini lesson.
1: Okay, quick lesson in self-compassion. So basically, what is it? It is giving yourself when you suffer the same grace and kindness that you would give another person. What self-compassion is not is it's not pretending that a mistake or a problem didn't happen. It's not like erasing your feelings and becoming paralyzed From your motivation because you suddenly stopped expecting anything of yourself. All it is, is like, can you move through a challenge, a mistake, a disappointment without eviscerating yourself and telling yourself that you're a horrible person? Because so many of us use self criticism as like our Red Bull. So, self compassion is a vigorously researched trait and three step practice which involves like I said three steps and so like let's say you you know in the presence of a woman of color say it would be a great idea for her to take back her you know brown skinned daughter to CVS to return an item that she had shoplifted and let's say you feel like a total ass for making that incredibly blind and privileged statement i'm of course talking about myself here and so the first step is is mindfulness which basically means can i say to myself how i feel right now without judging myself so, like before self-compassion I would be like I'm such an idiot like I believe I, I can't believe I said that like I'm so stupid this is so classic like, mm. I'm just so white and stupid white being an epithet here so, <laughs> so that's not mindful mindful <laughs> would be to say god I feel so embarrassed right you know, God I feel I feel sad and guilty for basically not seeing this woman right for for completely othering this woman who who probably was turning to me to find out what I thought. I feel so embarrassed. You see the difference, right? It's also not denying it. I mean, there's exaggeration of I'm an idiot and then there's denying, which is like, that woman, You know, she's so focused on herself. Like I gave really good advice anyway. So neither of those works. It's just like, how do you feel without judging anything? The second step is self-kindness. And this is deceptively simple. All it is, is if someone you loved was going through the same thing, what would you say to them? So if like you, Rashma, came to me and told me this story and you were like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I can't believe I screwed this up. I'd probably say to you, well, you're lucky that she came forward to tell you that you screwed up because you've got a chance to learn and you can also make it up to her. And like, you're still learning. And this is why it's so important for you to like, make sure that you're checking your own white privilege all the time. But that doesn't mean that you're not dedicated and you're not still doing good things in the world. And the third step is common humanity. And all that is, is am I the only person to ever have screwed up a response in this way or to have kind of missed the boat in terms of my own white privilege? I'm not the only one. And that third and final step is about trying to push back shame because when we beat ourselves up and many, many women do this and girls, we can very easily go to this place of I'm a bad person. like Mm. I'm horrible. I'm a terrible person. And that depletes our motivation. It depletes our uh, problem-solving skills. It certainly doesn't make us want to get back out there and try again. So you have to, in that moment, your final step is like, all right, I'm part of a world in which people screw up, and I got to get back out there and keep trying. So that is self-compassion.
0: I love it. That is so, we're like furiously taking notes. So last question, can you think of a moment where you decided to be brave, not perfect?
1: Yes, So I have been totally terrified of doing online teaching, even though I've had fairly successful people in that space come to me and be like, dude, why aren't you teaching your stuff online? Like, it's so good for online. I'm like, Oh, I know I should. But deep down, I was like, because I'm scared of speaking into a screen. So this year, I decided to face my fear. And I launched my first online parenting course. And oh, my God, Rashma, I was sweating bullets. Like, I mean, the whole way through just like sweating and stumbling (laughs) over my words. But but I did it and I did eight classes, eight modules, and it went really well. Wow. And I was so proud of myself. And I, you know, for me with my students, first of all, you know, I can't teach this stuff if I'm not scaring myself on some level or making myself nervous in some way. But like I say to them, you know one of the ways that you increase your confidence is you prove to yourself that you're more of something than you thought before. Like you get the feeling that, Oh, I didn't know that I was like that. And like, I didn't know that I was as brave as I am. And I didn't know that mm. I was like as tough as I am. And man, that felt really good. So, um, yeah, that's, that's going to be my, my new jam in 2019. going to try to do and And your my podcast. podcast is- Whoa. This is the first time I'm saying it. If I say it, does that it's happening? my new podcast called Inside I'm Still a Teenage Girl yes
0: yes I said it Ooh, that just made me feel so nervous all right well you 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 have your first listeners right here this was amazing Rachel have an awesome spring break and big hug and let's get together uh, in the new year I'd love to see you
1: thank you so much for having me on the show
0: thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect want to make bravery a part of your everyday routine you can buy my newest book, Brave Not Perfect, Fear Less, Fail More, and Live Bolder. It's on shelves now and available at your favorite local or online retailer. I can't wait to hear what you think. Till next time, this has been another episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Rush Sajani. Brave Not Perfect is produced by Tanya Zaporanek
1: and Emily Scheinbar and edited by Jenny Josephson with music composed by Poddington Bear, licensed under a Creative Commons license.